0: of original music. And I got a little
1: uh, uh, preview from Jeffrey this morning and we're in for a treat. Thank you, Noah, for sharing your uh, music with us. And we'll start with this brief uh, introduction to set the mood for today.
2: Powerful
3: take a stand I have a
2: voice my voice is powerful my voice can change the world I have a voice my voice is powerful my voice can change the world change the world
3: Shasanu shasanu she asanu, Elohim, baruch
2: Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam she shasanu shasanu asanu, v'tzela. is powerful. My voice can change the world. I have a voice. My voice is powerful. My voice can change the world. Change the world.
3: Stand up for what's right.
2: I'll stand
3: up for what's right. I will use this strength I've been given to be alive. I have, I have a,
2: a voice. voice.
3: My voice is powerful.
2: My voice, voice can change, change the world. I have a voice. My voice is powerful. My voice can change the
1: that was really moving that was so beautiful and so um apropos of today um and i'm really looking forward to hearing the voices of jack and peter today um and we're going to hear more from um noah as well more music as we go through the presentation so um i could see from the chat that other people um, are as moved as i am with the music um okay so we're going to go to our first presenter now we have Peter Kutfer, who is here to talk about his Holocaust memoir, The Glassmaker's Son. Um, I believe today is the launch of the book. So uh, we're really honored to be a part of the book launch. Um, Peter is an award-winning journalist with extensive experience writing and editing books, newspaper and magazine articles we- and websites. Peter specializes in nonfiction, particularly memoirs, biography and journalism. Um, Also, other areas of interest are business, technology, arts, and culture. Uh, Peter was a copy editor for the San Francisco Chronicle for 14 years, and before that was a business reporter and editor at the United Press International New York. His freelance writing has appeared in leading newspapers and magazines and websites, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the New Yorker. Um, And this is Peter's first book published by Amsterdam Press. We are gonna learn today about The Glassmaker's Son and I'm looking forward to this presentation. Thank you, Peter, for being with us today.
4: Thank you very much, Dana. Um, One quick correction. (laughs) I'd never have written for The New Yorker, unfortunately. um, Sorry, The New
1: York Observer, sorry. Yeah,
4: there's a big difference there. The New Yorker is like the ultimate for most writers and unfortunately I haven't quite gotten there yet, but who knows, it's never too late. Um, But thank you for the introduction and thank you everyone for being here, um, especially my dear friends from near and far. Um, And um, so The Glassmaker's Son is uh, the culmination of about ten years of research and writing and um, seeking a publisher um, you know so it's a it's a great uh, moment for me uh, and I'm very happy to be here and to have my book uh, finally uh, out in the world. so thank you all for coming. Um, the book is actually two stories. Um, one is my quest to discover the world my father left behind in Nazi Germany, as, as the title uh, says. Um, but it's also about my own relationship with my dad. Um, so it's basically these two stories that have sort of been inter-
0: interwoven. Um, you can show the next slide, Jeffrey. Uh, uh, in fact, you can
4: show the next four slides in the, in the next couple of minutes. Okay. Uh, my father immigrated to the United States in October 1937, um, a year before
0: Crystal knocked. Um, next slide. My father was. Uh,
4: born Robert Kupfer. He he later changed his name, anglicized it to Cooper. And I actually changed it back to my father's original name uh, when I was in my 30s, actually.
0: Um, Next slide. Uh, That's my dad um, as a young boy.
4: my grandfather was a principal in a uh, large uh, Bavarian glassmaking business um, before the Nazis forced him to sell the business, as so many other Jewish uh, uh, professionals and businessmen were forced out of their out of their professions. Um, and my grandfather Otto Kupfer decided, um, for reasons I'm not. Really sure about, um, decided to stay behind. But as with many other uh, German Jews, um, no one could have imagined that things were going to get, you know, as bad as as they did. Um, so he did stay behind, and uh, unfortunately, he perished at Terezin uh, uh concentration camp in western
0: Czechoslovakia. Uh, next slide, please. Yeah, that's, uh, I grew up in uh, New Haven and
4: my dad, when he immigrated here in '37, that's where he settled and met my mother and Richard, my brother, older brother and I were, were
0: raised in, in New Haven. Um, n- next slide.
4: <clears throat> this is my father's uh, uh, visa, US visa that he obtained in 1937
0: uh, from the American Consulate in Stuttgart. Stuttgart. Uh, Next slide. And that's my grandfather Otto on the left and my dad on the right. Uh, Next slide, please. And this is a, yeah, this is a, a postcard of uh, one of the
4: glass factories that my father's family owned in Väiden, in which was my dad's hometown where he grew up. Um, and my grandfather, Otto, was actually, uh, a, had uh, 11 siblings. Uh, and the Robert Cooper, you see it, bottom was actually not my dad. My dad was born Robert Cooper, but that was his uncle. That was like one of my grandfather's uh, brothers. Uh, But that's one of the factories. They actually, um, as I found out in my book, which was astonishing to me, you know, in researching my book was that they owned more than a dozen glass factories throughout Bavaria and uh, Bohemia. And it was Really stunning to me because my dad never. All I knew was that he, had, you know, he was. They were in the glass business. I had no idea till I went to his hometown for the first time in 1979 that the family had actually owned many factories and was, uh, you know, played a major role in the history of glassmaking in Bavaria. So anyway, this was uh, one of the factories uh, in the town in the city where they. Where my dad grew up. Uh, Next slide. And this is a photograph taken in 1913 of uh, members of my father's family. In the center is a woman named, the older woman named Fanny Kupfer, who um, I'll speak about later in my presentation, but she was my great grandmother. and she's holding one of her grandchildren who was uh, an aunt of mine. The boy at the bottom right sitting down in the sailor outfit is my father. And the other boy on the left sitting is uh, my uncle Ernst. Who, when my dad immigrated to the United States in 37, my uncle Ernst uh, immigrated to uh, France. So in fact, um, I have more relatives in France because my the descendants of my uncle Ernst uh, uh,
0: they all live in France, and so my I have a family uh, there. Um, but fifteen of the people in this photograph. Oh, by
4: the way, the woman on the far left is my grandmother uh, Berta, and. Uh, The gentleman with the mustache sort of in the middle slightly to the right is my grandfather Otto again, but um,
0: 15 of the people in this photograph perished in the Holocaust. Okay, I'd like to uh, begin uh,
4: by reading a bit of from the first chapter of my book. uh, Next photograph. My father rarely spoke about his life in Germany before the war. Much of what I knew or imagined about his early years was drawn from an album of old photographs, one of the few personal items he was able to bring with him when he immigrated to the United States in 1937. Next slide. It was filled with pictures of elegantly dressed, confident-looking people. Secure about their places in the world, posed in front of stately houses and picturesque landscapes. Next slide. This is a a photograph of my family, uh, my father's family, in the rear of their, uh, what was called the Kupfer Villa in Weiden, their hometown. And the gentleman on the far right is my grandfather, Otto. And the little boy is uh, named Eric, who uh, was one of the few relatives that um, lived, you know, descendants uh, that lived in the United States. Uh, Eric lived in upstate New York. He was actually my only, my father's only uh, surviving relative in, in the United States. He got out actually in October of '38, so just a matter of days, actually before the
0: uh, Kristallnacht. Um, Next slide. Uh, They were pictures of elegantly dressed, confident
4: looking people, secure about their places in the world, posed in front of stately houses and picturesque landscapes. Next, Next slide. There is no hint of the catastrophic events that would soon engulf them and millions of other European Jews.
0: Next slide. <clears throat> That's my grandfather again. As a boy, I spent hours
4: leafing through the frayed pages of that album to a middle class kid growing up in a stifling, stifling, I can never say that word, in a dull Connecticut suburb. The pictures were a window into a thrillingly exotic world. There was my father skiing in Yugoslavia. Next slide. Horseback riding in Italy, swimming off the Dalmatian coast,
0: hiking in the Bavarian Hills. Next slide. Those are my, those are pictures of my father.
4: In every picture he is meticulously groomed, his short dark hair brushed back and mustache neatly trimmed. He is often dressed in a suit and tie, sometimes accessorized with a hat, handkerchief and gloves. I sometimes wondered how that dashing young blade turned into the sedate, pop vellyed man I knew as my father. The picture I liked the best showed two men dressed in fur collared overcoats. Next, next slide please. Picture I liked the best showed two men dressed in fur collared overcoats feeding the pigeons at St. Mark's Square in Venice. One of them wearing an impish smile under his Homburg was my grandfather Otto. The other, bareheaded and darkly handsome, a, per- a pigeon perched on his outstretched arm was my father. And this, by the way, uh, as you might have noticed from <laughs> my background is a photo I used for, my, for the cover of my book And it's photograph I've always always adored. So I was really thrilled when it, I was able to use it for the book cover. Fascinated by the world captured in those photographs, I would ply dad with questions. Who are those people? Where was this taken? What are those mountains in the distance? Most of the time he swatted away my questions as, as if they were flies. If he did respond, the answers were invariably brief and Maddenley Madden- Day, which only piqued my interest more. In 1979, three years after my father died, when I was 28, I decided the time had come to satisfy my curiosity about the world he had left behind. I wanted to see the house he had lived in, walk the streets he had walked, perhaps even meet some of the people he had known. I quit my job as a proofreader at a law firm in New York and purchased a round trip flight to Europe. Armed with a URL pass, the Let's Go Europe guidebook, and about $500 in travel ships, I spent six weeks dashing from city to city like a crazed kid in the candy store. Starting in Brussels, my itinerary included Amsterdam, Berlin, Munich, Innsbruck, Venice, Rome, Florence, Nice, and Paris. Next slide, please. There was one other stop, Weiden, the small city in northeastern Bavaria where dad was born and grew up. Shortly before leaving for Europe, I went to see Frederick Alberti, the New York lawyer who had represented my father in, in his efforts to obtain reparations from the German government for losses his family had suffered in the Holocaust. A gaunt elderly man with a gentle demeanor, Alberti smiled wanly as I explained the purpose of my trip. Behind him through a window overlooking Sixth Avenue, I could see see midtown traffic crawling uptown like a procession of ants. Alberti picked up a thick manila envelope sitting on his desk and handed it to me. I'm not sure any of this will be very helpful, he said wearily,
0: but I think you should have it. Next slide. Inside, I found a
4: sheaf of old documents, including Dad's German birth certificate, driver's license, and passport, as well as a passenger list of the SS Bremen, the ship in which he sailed to America, dated
0: October 19, 1937. Next slide, please. One other document caught my eye, a faded yellow form
4: with the word todes fallen saga, printed in thick black letters at the top. Next slide, please. It was, my, it was the death certificate for my grandfather, Otto, who died in Theresa a Jewish ghetto in Western Czechoslovakia
0: on December 27th, 1942. I wish you a good trip and
4: success with your mission, Alberti said, as he slowly stood up and extended a brittle hand.
0: But don't expect too much. 40 years is a long time. The book goes on to
4: describe my first visit to Biden in 1979, which was marked by a series of surprising discoveries and uncanny coincidences. While searching for my grandfather's old house, for example, I stumbled on the offices of the local newspaper, Dino Tag, where I met a reporter named Inga Rogner. Next slide.
0: Who wrote a series of articles about my visit and my search for my family roots.
4: Here we are at the... uh, Jewish cemetery where I I found the cemetery, I found the gravestone of my family, um, which by the way, had been like so many other Jewish cemeteries in Germany had been uh, vandalized and looted. Um, And some of the stones were, many of the, you know, the gravestones were broken, some were carted away and used to pave roads. Others were used actually by, Christians in their cemeteries. Um, And after the war, they were the Americans who were uh, in charge of that region, uh, you know, made the uh, people bring those stones back. And in any case, uh, that's Inga with me uh, at the Jewish cemetery. Inga wrote a series of articles about my visit In my search for my family roots, next slide, please. This is one of a number of articles she wrote, uh, and there you can see me by the gravestone of my family, and that wasn't the original gravestone. I I think uh, it was destroyed in uh, during Kristallnacht or or sometime afterwards, and they uh, the Jewish community, you know, uh, bought. are paid to have new stones made, and that's my dad as a student, in you know, nineteen late twenties or early thirties, probably, probably, probably nineteen twenties, yeah. Um, while I was being interviewed by Inga, another over, another journalist overheard us and pointed to an article in that day's newspaper about the closing of a glass factory in Biden. Next, next slide, please. Remarkably, the factory, which had been one of the city's largest industries, was one of the foundries my father's family had owned before the war. Indeed, my grandfather had been director of this factory and my father had also worked there.
0: That afternoon, I walked over to the factory to take a look around. Next slide, please. In the book, that's my father working in his office. In the book, I describe what
4: happened next. I followed the railroad track southwest of the city center to a complex of soot-stained brick buildings punctuated by a pair of towering smokestacks. A sign outside the main building read, Flachglas AG. That's uh, German for flat glass. They, they made a uh, window glass basically and she, you know, sheet glass, plate glass. As I approached the entrance, a burly bald headed man was pulling shut a high, heavy iron gate about to close the factory for the day. And if the article in Der Neue Tag was correct for the last time, I called out to him waving the newspaper in the air. ist das, I asked, employing my piddling German as I pointed to the article about the factory. He squinted his eyes suspiciously and nodded. I am a Kupfer, I said. My grandfather was director here. The man obviously didn't speak English, but when I mentioned the name Kupfer, his head tilted. Kupfer, see Kupfer, he asked skeptically. Yeah, yeah, I said, nodding vigorously. After a moment, he flapped his hand impatiently gesturing for me to come inside and slam the gate shut behind me. I followed him up a steep flight of stairs and down a long narrow corridor. We entered a large conference room. There seated around a long rectangular table cluttered with beer bottles, half filled glasses and smoldering ashtrays was a group of about a dozen, mostly elderly men dressed in jackets and ties. There was something frightening about these men with their gray hair, weathered faces, and dour expressions. In my agitated state, I felt as if I had just walked into a scene from an old war movie, and these men,
0: these Nazis, were plotting their next act of destruction. The blonde whispered into the ear of
4: a younger, dark-haired man seated at the center of the table. After a few moments, the The man stood up and approached me, holding out his hand. Mr. Kupfer, he said, smiling. The sound of my father's name in that room sent a shiver up my spine. He introduced himself as Sepp Hummel, the director of the factory, and asked me a few questions in perfect English. Where was I from? What was I doing in Biden? I showed him some old photographs of my father and grandfather that I had brought with me. He studied the pictures and nodded, apparently in no hurry to resume the meeting. As I chatted with Keir Hummel, I heard my father's name ricochet around the room. And at the corner of my eye, I could see the other men looking at me suspiciously as if I were an imposter or an apparition. After a few minutes, the director motioned for me to take a seat at the end of the table and began his presentation. I sat there in sudden silence. Less than 24 hours earlier, I had arrived in my father's hometown not knowing whether I'd find even a scrap of information about his family. Now, here I was attending the final meeting of the factory his family had once owned, surrounded
0: by men who not only had worked there, but may have known my father and grandfather. I later met the son of a former business associate of my grandfather, who offered to drive me to
4: a teeny hamlet near the Czech border, where my grandfather and his eleven siblings
0: were born, and which was the site of the Kupfer's first glass foundry. Next slide, please. Oh, this is a bit out of order, but this is this is another picture of the
4: Vaiden Glass Factory. Sorry. Um, Yeah, this is the glass boundary in Vyden, probably around the turn of the 20th century. Um, Next slide. Okay, now we're in this little hamlet uh, by the Czech border called Frankenreuth. And uh, this gentleman I met, he had read an article that Inge had written in the newspaper. I was staying at a youth hostel in Vyden, and he called me up and he said he wanted to take me, well, he introduced himself, his name, was Edward Whitman, and he told me um, that his father had been a business associate of my grandfather's, and his his father's company flattened and ground and polished the glass that my father's factory, uh, my grandfather's factory manufactured. But anyway, um, he asked uh, he, he wanted to drive me to this little Hamlet because he knew this is where my grandfather's family was originally from, and where the first the family
0: foundry was located. So um, he offered to drive me to Teen
4: Hamlet near the Czech border where my grandfather and his 11 siblings were born
0: in the site of the first Kupfer glass foundry. Uh, When we arrived at the
4: the Hamlet, Edward began knocking on doors, trying to find someone who could he could talk to. Um, and here's what happened next, uh, as I write in my book. Edward pounded on the door and not bothering to wait for a response, walked right in. If he had done that in the United States, I couldn't help thinking. He stood a good chance of getting shot. But in rural Bavaria, this was apparently considered acceptable behavior. We found ourselves in a small dark room stippled by bright afternoon sunlight streaming in through the window. A cast iron wood burning stove stood against the rear wall and a few kitchen utensils hung from pegs on the wall. It took me a moment to realize that there were three people sitting around a small wooden table by the the window. An old man with a bushy yellow mustache dressed in a faded plaid shirt and suspenders sat nearest the door. A cigarette was wedged between his fingers and a glass of amber colored beer stood on a table in front of him. Across from him on the far side of the table, a middle aged woman gazed at us silently as she took a long drag on her cigarette. Between them facing the window sat an older woman with tousled gray hair. None of them seemed the least bit surprised that stu- two strangers had just barged into their kitchen uninvited. Edward introduced himself and his American sidekick. When he mentioned the name Kupfer, the old man's face lit up. Yes, he knew my family, knew them well. Like almost everyone else in Frankenroy, he had worked at the glass foundry. Not only
0: that, his aunt had been a housekeeper in the Kupfer's house. Next slide, please. His name was Adam, Adam Dobner. The woman
4: sitting next to him was his wife, Hermine, and the younger woman was his daughter. When I showed here Dobner, the photograph of the Kupfer clan gathered at my grandfather's house in Biden, a picture, take, a picture taken a half a century earlier. He nodded and picked out Otto without a moment's hesitation. Her mind also recognized my grandfather from the photo. Once again, I found myself in a state of disbelief. Here I was in a remote Bavarian hamlet I hadn't even heard of until the day before, talking to a man who not only knew my father's family but had worked for them for many years. Speaking in short bursts, interrupted by gasping breaths, Dodner talked at length about the old days of the glass he seemed just as excited to be reliving that history as I was to be hearing it for the first time. As Eddie translated for me, I madly scribbled notes in my travel di- diary. With his gnarled, nicotine-stained nicotine fingers jabbing the air for emphasis, he described how the glassworks was laid out and operated. As Edward sketched diagrams on a sheet of paper. First, the mixture of sand and potash was melted in a large furnace fueled by trees in the surrounding forest. Then the workers used long pipes to blow the melted glass into balloons. After the hollow orbs cooled, they were cut and flattened at a nearby sheaf and poly like the one Eddie's family had owned. Workers had to be very strong because they had to dance around to make sure the glass stayed round, Dovner recalled. With that, he stood up and did a little jig as his hands formed a cylinder in front of his mouth. We drank a lot of beer because it was hot as hell inside the foundry. That's why Bavarian glass often smelled of glass, he added, cackling like a teenager. After the family moved to Weiden, the Kupfers would return to Frankenreuth periodically to check on the glass suit and their other properties. Not many people owned automobiles in those days. So when the workers saw the Coopers driving down the road, we knew the Lords were coming, Dobner said with a snort.
0: Next slide, please.
4: Shortly after returning from my first visit to Biden, I received an extraordinary letter from an elderly woman named Emma Fisher, who had been a housekeeper in my grandfather's house. In the letter, Frau Fisher explained that when my grandfather was forced to sell his house under the Nazi organization policy, he entrusted her with a pair of oil paintings of his parents, my great grandparents, Edward and Fanny Kupfer.
0: Next slide, please. Frau Fischer, who was
4: then 90 years old, invited me to come back to Weiden so she could return the paintings to their
0: rightful owners. Next slide, please. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to return to Weiden for four years.
4: By then, Frau Fischer had died and the paintings had been inherited by her niece. When I went to see the niece, she demanded a large sum of money for their return. I couldn't afford what she was asking, but even if I could, I wouldn't have paid her even a penny because the portraits belonged to my family. It took more than 25 years with many twists and turns along the way before I finally got the paintings back. In June, 2007, I met two of my cousins, descendants of Fanny and Edward as well. One from France and one from England. And we went to the home of one of Emma Fisher's
0: relatives to reclaim the paintings. Here's how I described the scene. Oh, Sorry, I got to find that scene, (laughs) one second.
4: As we drove to Audrey's house in the outskirts of the city, chills darted up and down my spine. It was hard to believe that nearly 70 years after my grandfather had been forced to give them up and more than a century after they had been painted, the portraits of Edward and Fanny were about to be reunited with their family. Audrey was waiting for us on the doorstep of her modest, well-kept row house. A short, stout woman with close-cropped gray hair she greeted us with a shy smile and led us into the house. It didn't take long to spot the portraits, set in matching antique gold frames. They were hanging regally
0: above the sofa, commanding the attention of anyone who entered the room. It was a strange feeling to
4: finally see the portraits in the flesh, so to speak, after knowing them for so many years, only through the five by seven reproductions Inga had made.
0: When we, when we
4: got back to the car, the three Cooper cousins exchanged high fives. Wonderbar, Inga explained. At last the paintings are back where they belong. Then we drove to Inga's club for a celebratory lunch and drank a champagne toast to Edward and Fanny. That evening, as I stood alone on the balcony of my hotel room in Viden, I thought about the long journey that had brought me there. It took more than a quarter century from the time I had first heard about the existence of Edward and Fanny's portraits to finally get them back. Amid all the losses the Coopers had suffered as, as a result of the Holocaust. Salvaging this piece of family legacy felt like a small but important victory. And of course, I thought about my father. I'm sure he would have been proud of what my cousins and I had done. I pictured him looking down on us and smiling and I felt closer to him than I had in a long time. Um, As I said at the beginning, uh, the book is really uh, two stories and the other story was my relationship with my father who was uh, a very reserved man who really talked about himself or certainly never talked about his life in Germany before the war. Um, so I just wanna read one, uh, one brief passage uh, from the book about uh, my relationship with my father. Dad wasn't like the other fathers I knew. For one thing, he was 44 when I was born, which was considerably older than most of my friends' fathers. Although he had an excellent command of English, he spoke with a thick German accent. Having grown up with that guttural elocution, I wasn't aware of how different it sounded until my friends started to make fun of him, mimicking him with an exaggerated growl. He never took me camping or fishing or did other guy stuff that fathers typically do with their sons. He never helped me build a model airplane or work on a science project. On the rare occasions when he tried to help me with my homework, it usually didn't go well because he had grown up with a totally different educational system. When I once asked him to help me with a simple, solve a simple mathematical equation, he proceeded to fill out two sheets of paper with a blizzard of numbers lines and symbols that, as far as I was concerned, could have been Einstein's theory of relativity. I savor the times I had dad all to myself because they were rare. One of my earliest memories was going down, going with him on a Saturday morning to the blast Factory on Crown Street in downtown New Haven. The narrow brick building was deserted on weekends. And while he, packed orders, I ran around among the rows of silent gray sewing machines and bolts of brightly colored fabric. When I got tired of exploring, I'd crawl into an empty cardboard box and take a nap until he summoned me with a two-toned whistle he deployed to call me and our dog. Okay. Um, Jeffrey, how are we doing on time? I, do go want ahead. to- Just go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Okay, um, I'll read another um, passage uh, about my dad and me, uh, when we went to New York for uh, to go to the, sh- to the theater. Once or twice a year, dad took the family to New York for a weekend matinee. <clears throat> in those days, people dressed for the theater, especially people like my parents who put a lot of stock in their appearance. Dad wore a sports coat and tie, and mom a simple dress and heels. Richard and I usually got away with a polo shirt, neatly dressed slacks and oxfords, which dad buffed to a high gloss the night before over newspaper spread out on the kitchen table. We took the Merritt Parkway, a scenic highway that winds beneath a thick canopy of oak, maple, and birch, and traverses a series of rivers, ponds, and tidal marshes. Driving on the mirror felt like entering a magical kingdom, especially in autumn when the trees burst into a dazzling bouquet of red, yellow, and orange leaves, and in winter when the snow shrouded branches transformed the narrow highway into a ghostly corridor. The first show I remember seeing was The Music Man starring Bert Parks. I was giddy with the anticipation as dad led us through the throng going outside the theater and into the gilded lobby. The red velvet seats were frayed and lumpy, but that didn't dampen my excitement. As the lights faded and the curtains rose, we were magically transported, transported from Midtown Manhattan to a small Midwestern town. I tapped my toes and bounced in my seat as Parks flashed his thousand watt smile. And strutted across the stage as the band of boys blew their horns. After the show, Dad shepherded us around the corner to the Hotel Piccadilly, as he played air trombone and whistled seventy-six trombones. The Piccadilly, where the Marquee, where the Myriad Marquis Hotel now stands, had once been one of the most fashionable hotels in the theater district. But by the early 1960s, it had fallen out of favor and taken on a sad and slightly seedy being. Beneath the lobby's coffered ceilings and ornate chandeliers, the brocaded sofas and armchairs were faded and the oriental rugs were fraying. Even the potted potted palms looked tired. But dad didn't bring us to the Piccadilly to admire the decor. We were there to dine at the Scandia restaurant billed as New York's smorgasbord delight. Never had an advertising slogan been sure, been sure, at least to this boy's eyes. A long buffet t- table in the center of the room was adorned with murmuring fountain and laden with platters of roast beef, smoked salmon, sturgeon, and other delicacies. As I prepared to launch my initial assault, dad tugged to my shirt sleeve and whispered a familiar refrain in my ear. Don't be a fresher. Undeterred, I made a beeline for the buffet as if I a contested on the TV show Supermarket Sweeps <laughs> and had only five minutes to race around the store and fill my shopping cart. After my fourth or fifth sortie, dad had seen enough. He snagged me by the earlobe and decorously escorted me out of the restaurant. On the drive home, I experienced none of the merits Magic, I slept all the way. Fiddler on the Roof with Herschel Bernardi playing the role as the pious milkman Tevye was another favorite. Driving home after the show, dad, Richard and I sang songs one after the other. Sunrise, sunset, tradition, Anatevka. The next morning, dad walked into the kitchen as mom was preparing breakfast and began singing. If I were a rich man, you'd be be, dibby 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 do. As he did a Tevye-like dance, twisting his hands in the air and pirouetting. Richard and I laughed and clapped, but when he tried to get mom to join him on the dance floor, she just smiled and shook her head. I wonder if that song had a special resonance for him, because he had been a rich man once, but that was a long time ago. Okay, I'm going to conclude uh, the presentation with uh, an event that actually happened just a few weeks ago. Um, just by sheer happenstance, um, I've been trying to get Stolkerstein, which I think many of you are familiar with. They're the commemorative uh, stumbling stones that are laid at the homes of um, the families of victims of the Holocaust. And they're in Germany, uh, primarily, but also in many other countries in Europe, including uh, Great Britain and so forth. Anyway, I've been trying for a better part of 10 years to have these uh, commemorative stones uh, installed at my father's family's home. And there was a lot of resistance actually among the Jewish Community there, um, because as many of you may know, some people are not. Some people feel that these uh, stones are are disrespectful because people can actually walk on them, and they're, you know, that they're not appropriate uh, memorial for the victims. Um, but I felt it was really important that um, my family be recognized and remembered in, in their hometown, and so after ten years of uh, pursuing this, uh, we finally got the Jewish community and the local officials to um, to agree. And uh, so this was scheduled for November 22nd in Biden. And I went there with my niece Ariel. So it was just a few weeks ago we were there. And it was a very moving event. Uh, the creator of the program. Um, uh, Gunter Demnick, who, he's the artist that created this Stoperstein, was in attendance. The mayor was there, the leader of the Jewish community. Uh, I spoke, as you can see. Uh, the gentleman over here is uh, the historian uh, for the city of Biden, who actually was a big help to me on his, in uh, researching my book. And the the man to my uh, left is a uh, Paul Sinclair, who's my cousin from London, outside London. So anyway, there was was several dozen people that attended this uh, ceremony outside uh, my father's grandfather's former house. Uh, Because I I guess I neglected to say that um, one of the startling things I found out during my research was that my grandfather's house, which had been a, a very large house and had been considered one of the most desirable properties in the town had been destroyed uh, by an American artillery in the closing days of the war. And uh, we believe it was sort of an accidental uh, hit because it it was located across the street from the railroad station. And the Americans were apparently targeting the uh, railroad station and uh, one of the missiles uh, struck the house and destroyed it. So now, what was an elegant house is now a mattress store, which, uh, well, take, make of that what you wish. But anyway, let me, uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, uh, you can go to the next slide, please. Uh, so during the uh, Stolperstein ceremony, uh, some of the students from the local high school presented a a history of the Kupfer family, which I found very moving, you know, and uh, that's my, that's Edward again. You can go to the next slide. Yeah, so they they presented this uh, visual uh, story of my father's family, which uh, was really well done, I thought. Next slide. And the following day, uh, I read uh, passages from my book at the public library, which was uh, uh, very well attended. I was actually quite surprised that there were about 100 people that um, gathered uh, at the library for the uh, presentation uh, for my reading. And uh, that was also very moving. And i just like to close by saying that I I was very encouraged by the interest uh, and attendance of the young people from the town because uh, they seem to be very engaged and very well you know, educated about the Holocaust and, and its impact on, on, on German society. So thank you all for listening. And sorry, I went on a little bit too long, but
5: anyway. that's really terrific. I also want to acknowledge that, as we said, that um, Peter's launching his book today, and he's needing to get to his Physical uh, book launch was, which is uh, somewhere in San Francisco, so we're going to uh, change pace a little bit and take questions now, if there are questions for Peter uh, and maybe Dana, you can help take over this part.
1: Yes, thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you, Peter. That was such a fascinating and moving presentation. I mean, what an incredible story and journey. Um, I have so many questions and I know other people do too. And we always start with the questions in the chat. And so there's a question in the chat that I'm gonna uh, repeat for you or, um, or Judith, do you, do you wanna ask your question? Judith Tellerman, do you wanna unmute and ask your question? It's actually my question as well. Is Judith here still?
6: Sorry, it was okay. muted. Um... Okay,
7: no problem. Thank you, Judith.
6: I was wondering about the motivation of the people to use these portraits as a centerpiece in their home. Did they think of it like putting up portraits of royalty or were they just, uh, you know, these are Jewish people that were unrelated to them and why do you put them up in your living room and as, I mean they're gorgeous portraits, but I don't, you know, I was wondering about the psychology behind it since I'm a
4: psychologist. So yeah, well, that's a good question actually, because um, they, they claimed, uh, well, the woman that, whose home we went to to get the portraits claimed that she didn't know the provenance of the paintings. Um, that they thought they were just, and I have to say that these were people of very modest means. Um, in fact, someone described them as among the poorest people in the town. Um, so for them, uh, an oil painting of, of any kind probably would be considered, you know, something uh, something very nice. Um, but she claimed that she didn't know the provenance of the paintings. But actually, when we took the portraits down, we found pasted on the back uh, some documents that established clearly they were portraits of Edward and Fanny Kupfer, and that they were, you know, that there was some history. The history of the portraits was 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 actually in there. So the woman might not have known, but her husband, who had died only shortly before we got there, certainly knew um where the portraits came from. So yeah, it's it's a little odd for sure. And they also wanted. They also wanted. One thing I forgot to mention is they they wanted a lot of money, or maybe I didn't mention it. The their, her mother wanted a lot of money for the portraits. Um, so they they saw it as a, uh, you know, as a financial transaction. They, they they were worth something. They wanted the money.
6: Yeah, I I just wonder if it's like a tro. I, I hate to think that it would just be a trophy of conquering. You know. They were conquered and they were destroyed, and now these are the trophies. I hate to think of that, but
1: yeah. Thank, thank you, Judith. I,
6: I had the same question, and uh,
5: two Peter, psychologists, uh, by the way. Yeah, That's really interesting.
6: <laughs> well, you know, you think about the Arch of Titus. I mean, I can't help but relate to these trope, you know, these trophies of we defeated the Jews, you know. So, but
4: who knows. Yeah, I never thought of that, but it's possible. I don't know. I think for them, it was more about you know financial leverage, and you know, they wanted
0: mm-hmm. they wanted
4: to get money for them, and when they couldn't sell them, they they just kept them. I, I don't know. Uh,
1: um, so, Peter, um, we're going to continue with questions, but um, I've been monitoring the chat, and before you go, um, check out the chat because you have a lot of lovely comments from people who really enjoyed your presentation. Um, Okay, so let's continue with questions because this is a fascinating story. Um, raise your hand if there is a question you would like to ask Peter, please. And, and Janet, um,
5: Janet has a question. Janet, you can unmute yourself.
7: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you, Peter. That was uh, very moving and enlightening. Um, since your father was so remote, aloof, and distant from you growing up, and you dove into this um, and discovered this history. I'm sure as a kid, you must've asked your mother about it too, but I gather you went in knowing very little. So I'd like to know from your point of view, how how you look upon your father now and his um, refusal to talk about it as many Holocaust survivors have been known to do and how you view him now.
4: Well, you know, as you said, um, and there's a chapter in my book about this, um, that through my research, I, I found that, uh, you know, there are basically two camps, you know, the, of Holocaust survivors, those who, like my dad, just didn't want to talk about it and, and just wanted to distance distance themselves from that in trauma, and then there's others who talk incessantly about it um so yeah i mean i think for me it was like a lot of maybe second generation uh people um it seemed when i when i grew up the holocaust just seemed like this really distant ancient history that had absolutely nothing to do with me you know growing up because my dad never spoke about it i just assumed it was just you know, just a little footnote in history. I mean, it was ugly, it was horrible. Yes, my grandfather died, but it, it didn't affect me. It had nothing to do with me. And it was only really through the process of writing this book that I realized how wrong I was and how, you know, the intergenerational trauma that some people have mentioned, you know, did affect me. And my father's silence, um, you know, I think, affected, you know, in, inevitably affected my personality, my my view of the world. So, but, uh, you know, I mean, I just feel as far as my relationship with my dad, I only, I actually felt closer to him in the process of writing this book than I did. I mean, I always loved him and I always felt close to him, but I think I feel even closer to him through the process of writing this book than I did before, so.
5: And Jack, you wanna unmute yourself?
8: Yeah, just an incredible story. So many parallels, what, what sticks out, Peter, did you, did you ever experience when you were there, did you get the feeling that, that the Germans there, that, that the current people there, that they thought you came back specifically to look, to reclaim stolen property? Did you, did you have any experience with that? I, I just out of curiosity.
4: Yeah, well, I think definitely at the that scene in the factory, I yeah, got, that, I mean,
0: yeah.
4: <laughs> I mean, there wasn't That's anything. Over, I mean, wasn't anything overtly said, but it was like, here I was at the final meeting of the, you know, the management of the factory, and they all looked at me, and I, I, I got a sense they were thinking, "What the hell is he doing here?" And like, is he trying to, yeah. Know, to take this property back, mm-hmm. um, so I never got any overt uh, messages of that kind, but I, I got a sense that there was, and also with the paintings, um, you know, this woman who I initially met, you know, she she was under the impression that I was some wealthy, you know, skion of a powerful industrial family, you know, and, and we were just... I was just a middle-class kid from America. You know, I didn't have any money back then, and I still don't. But uh, you yeah. <laughs> know,
8: I'm so glad those paintings are in your possession. So glad. Yes,
4: they're actually not with me um, because um, I, 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 my cousin from London took them because I thought it would
8: be family. It's, it's in your yeah. family's possession. Right.
4: Right. <laughs> What,
1: what a dramatic moment at that um, factory. I mean that I just would love to see that in a movie um, and I can't wait, wait to read more details about it in the book. Um, what what did you what how did you feel? I mean it sounded almost like scary to me. I don't know like um, it, and you was scary. Your, it was you scary. by I yourself never... and uh, did they say anything to you or they just let you sit and listen and were they talking in german i mean
4: what what else happened it was all in german and i my german uh, you know is almost non existent so a lot of it was incomprehensible to me but yeah i was like i mentioned in the the passage i read i felt like i'd walked into this you know this uh conference of nazis i mean because there were all these older you know gray haired w- w- within the man and i You know, my imagination was kind of getting the better of me, but I mean, everyone was actually very nice to me and especially the director of the factory. He was very, very nice to me and welcoming and, you know, he could have said, you know, what are you doing here, please leave. I mean, but he offered me a seat at the table. And uh, so, yeah, I was very, um, you know, it was a very, uh, Exciting moment for me, but a little scary, too.
1: Yeah. So, uh, um, so I, 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 I think the another... word is
4: surreal. It was a surreal yeah, definitely.
1: Album. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering about like the psychology of, of, of you and how you've gone through all this. So I can see yeah. how you described how that album, um, photo album of your father's, you know, was like this window into what seemed like this, you know, magical world that he wouldn't talk about so that like intrigued you. you you went on this journey to go like discover what was that about but that was 1979 was a long time ago so you know this has been a long journey and have other people in your family been on this journey with you or, or I, I mean you've mentioned a few cousins here and there but have you mostly been driving this all by yourself or by yourself or has anybody in your family been on this journey with you
4: well no one in my immediate family might you know, my obviously, my father didn't talk about it. My mother actually was a bit baffled, I think, by my interest and my persistent, you know curiosity about what, you know, about my father's family and his life in Germany. And my brother had no interest whatsoever. Um, but there was a cousin, uh, the cousin I actually showed in the photograph earlier at the Stolperstein ceremony from England, the one who has the paintings. And he's also been very involved in research. Uh, and in fact, he was a volunteer at the Wiener Library in London, which is one of the largest repositories of Holocaust uh, you know, uh, artifacts in the world. So he's been involved in research. And in fact, he was a very helpful instrumental in my research because he speaks Uh, fluent German. So he's, he's been involved and uh, he was came with me to Biden to reclaim the paintings.
5: Okay, I'm going to uh, let you depart, uh, uh, Peter, and we're so grateful for you to use our platform to launch your book. And I'm sure, as you see in chat, there's so many people who have really fallen in love with your story and want to learn more by reading your book. And um, so thank you. And we'll let you, uh, uh, thank you go Jeffrey. to your physical uh, book launch.
4: Okay, thank you all very much. I, I will stick around because I'd want to hear a little bit more of, of Jack's. Uh, sure. I, hear, I have a little time, so I want to hear some of his uh,
5: well, I don't want to kick you out, so you stay. <laughs> now, also, <laughs> you, if, I, if anybody kick has... If anybody has their own story and you would like to bring that story forward, like uh, you don't have to have a book. You can bring your story forward without a book. Uh, I'll be, you know, available. You have my email address. I'll put it in the chat so you can contact me. I'm setting up programming for 2023, second half. Uh, and I would love to hear from you. So I'm going to uh, share my screen, Dana, and we're going to do our second musical uh, before we get to Jack.
2: Let there be love and understanding among us Let peace and friendship be our shelter from life's storms Let there be love and understanding among us Let peace and friendship we are sheltered from life's storms. Adonai Eloheinu, Hashkiveinu, Adonai Eloheinu, Hashkiveinu, Adonai
1: This really uh, remarkable music and such a nice companion uh, to, to, to our stories. So thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you, Noah Aronson, for sharing this beautiful music um, for this interlude. Um, we're going to now turn our attention to Jack Fried and his book, Heirs of Auschwitz, and I'm going to read Jack's bio. Um, You can find countless stories of the atrocities committed during the Holocaust as told firsthand by those souls that have witnessed, lived through, and survived indescribable horror. From great retellings from authors such as Elie Wiesel to dramatized influential works of fiction from writers including John Boyne, it becomes clear the Holocaust has impacted more than the people that directly experienced it. As the era of first-generation Holocaust survivors approaches its end, the stories as well as their trauma lives on. However, through their descendants, as a consequence, the descendants of the Holocaust, the descendants of Holocaust survivors, as current research suggests, have also been affected from the result of the experience of their parents and grandparents. Few stories are ever written about the errors of those who endured that indescribable horror and in the way that it manifests psychologically just two generations later. Author Dr. Jack Fried, born to the son and daughter of Holocaust survivors, is one of the many whose life has been forever changed by the events that transpired during the Holocaust. Intergenerational trauma is not a well-known concept, But for Dr. Fried, it meant that he had to take a journey into a past he didn't know personally, that of his grandparents' past, to find pieces to a puzzle that may answer his questions about the origins of a lifelong battle he has had with separation anxiety. His trip took him to Poland where he uncovered a slew of pent up emotions, fears, and dark histories. Oddly, as Dr. Fried learns about his family's past, and his present, he unknowingly embarks on a spiritual journey into Jewish mysticism, which slowly enables him to transcend transcend his lifelong struggles with a fear and anxiety that didn't belong to him. All of the inhibiting emotions were released upon his connection to the strife of his ancestors. Hey Jack, this is very fascinating. You speak my language, a 100%. <laughs> Uh, relate to what you wrote and i can't wait to hear the details of your presentation
5: so thank you so
1: much for being here today
5: i also want to add my thoughts why don't you start sharing your screen i want to let uh you all know that uh uh, jack is a jewish mailman because whether it's uh, (laughs) rains snow gloom of night he has had within the last couple weeks he lost his uh uncle, and he's in more in mourning period, but he didn't want to cancel. And if you see Jack being a little nasally, he has COVID, and he didn't want to cancel. So uh, we are so appreciative to bring Jack with us with this story. Both Dana and I have done two programs on Into the Light Intergenerational uh, Survivor Trauma, and we have a Havara coming up uh, um, next week uh, to discuss it as well. So take it away, Jack, and thank you, Dana, for stepping in for me.
8: Oh, thank you, thank you for having me, Jeff, and everybody. Um, I do want to mention that my uncle was my uncle Akiva was supposed to be here with us um, for this. Uh, I, I hope I can give as much as of, of an impact of this as as he will. Uh, there's no way I can I can put any any justice on it are you able to see my screen or did yes you get i can my- see your
5: screen but you have to boot up
8: your uh,
5: presentation so double click on your where your icon is and it should open your presentation
8: okay so let me do that i thought i did that um yeah i think i think this is more of, of a psychology type of uh presentation for the psychologies the psychologists that are out there that are joining us did it come up
5: no double click there right there where you are or you might have to go to open your file, open your documents and go to where you have the PowerPoint.
8: Yeah. Open it that. from there. Let me do that. Okay, you just, you just stopped. stopped it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go to the screen. Let me open it up.
0: And let's see if I'm doing this the right way. worked before, not the,
8: under the gun here. Be able to see it or? You have to share your
5: screen first. Okay. Share screen. It's a share and it's a share your screen and then a share, which is in the bottom corner. So you have to do two
8: shares. Two shares. Okay. So now I'm going to click my presentation here. Yeah,
5: there you go. right. Right now. Now set up your. You see where I showed you before where it said slideshow, go up to the top of the Nav bar where it says slideshow. Okay. No, don't change the picture. Just go up to the nav. Word. Now, okay, where you're, where you're at home, you see where you have home there. File. Yep. Go over yep. to the right. Go over to the right with your mouse. Skip. And drag Thank your you. mouse over to where it says slideshow. It's insert, draw, design, transitions, animations, slideshow. Go up to. Go up there. It's up. It's covered up. Man. No, no, it's right there. You saw it. You did it before. You have to go up to the line where it says file, home, insert, draw, design, transition. Yeah, I'm on that line. Okay, now go over to slideshow. One over to the right. You're on animations. Now just slide to go to slideshow. Go up to slideshow.
8: It's being covered. It's covered up by.
5: All right. So why don't you just um, X out? Oh, there we says. go. I
8: got it. I got it. Okay. I just moved it. I got it. Slideshow from beginning. Okay.
5: Yes, got it, bingo.
8: You got, got it? it? You're on your way. All right. So this book is actually, I guess it started from from a, um, a psychological perspective. As, a, as, a, as a, I'm 51 years old, um, as a child, I had always suffered like what you had read from from a condition known as separation anxiety. Never wanted to leave my house. Not, I didn't wanna go play with my friends. I didn't wanna to go to school. I didn't wanna to go to camp. I didn't want to do anything. Um, it's something that I had suffered with as a child. Back then, in the in the late '70s, early uh, early '80s, my parents would basically bounce around uh, or have me bounce around from uh, a psychologist to psychologist, child psychologist, trying to figure out what it was that was my my malfunction or my dysfunction, um, why I didn't want to go out, why I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything, why I, I suffered such a pervasive separation anxiety every time I, I uh, was separated from my, my family unit. <clears throat> Long story short, uh, life, life took its hold. Um, you know, went to school, met my wife, had children, um, thought that I had put this uh, separation anxiety or that this Holocaust mentality uh, to bed. Uh, lo and behold, I did not. As soon as my children were born and started growing up, the manifestations of the old type of uh, inner emotional trauma for less of a a better word would would start to manifest itself. And they started to manifest themselves really badly. Um, So I'm not gonna really focus too much on my book because you can all read about it. I wanna talk a little bit more about the trip that I took to Poland with my uncle Akiva. Which kind of helped me put things into perspective, so to speak. Um, I'm I'm a product of uh, of uh, uh, you know I'm born to to, to um, uh, survivors of the Holocaust from both sides of my family, maternal and paternal. Um, I don't know much information or much history at all about my paternal side. Both sides did not did not speak about it. Um, I, until I wrote, when I wrote the book, I found out that my grandfather would, would, did in fact speak to the Holocaust, but never to the grandkids, never to, to me, my siblings, my, my, uh, my, my cousins, nobody. We we had no idea. We had no background. I did know that I, you know, that I suffered from, from separation anxiety as, as an adult in my thirties, I went to seek uh, care under the the uh, under a psychologist to try to figure out where it was that this was coming from. Logically, I deduced that what I was experiencing was not from me. Uh, there's no way it could have been. It did not make sense. It wasn't logical. I grew up in the states. I was born in the states, um, and I did not have any type of experience in my past or in my present to elicit such a a, 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 a horrendous. Uh, response for me. So basically, um, I knew that I was left with the effect of something I did not know what the cause was. And I thought, you know, maybe if I can figure out what the cause was, I'd be able to better handle what it was I was going through, and overcome it, and be done with it, because it was dragging me down, it was no pl- no way to live. and. The first time I had ever thought of um, epigenetics or the transgenerational trauma through genetics um, was from my psychologist, believe it or not. We were sitting there one session. Um, she was having me go over my past, who I was, who my parents were, trying to get a little bit more background. Um, <clears throat> and at the end of our session, you know, she basically said, you know, Jack you did not have a normal childhood. You know, the, everything about your childhood was not normal. And that blew me away. Really? Wasn't normal? How, how How is it not normal? Well, she goes, you know, you, you're suffering from, anxi- from separation anxiety. There's a lot of research being done in the field of epigenetics. You need to understand that for your grandparents, separation meant death. That was it. If you were gonna be separated from your lo- loved ones, you were gonna die. You need to understand that, you know, it it took me a little bit of time uh, to come to terms with that. I left that session that day, my mind was blown. I had no idea what it was um, that that could have been causing this. I'll just read a little, little bit about it from my book because it'll put it into perspective for those that are unaware of transgenerational trauma Um, Since our genes form the genesis of both our physical bodies and emotional state of mind, it is only logical that outside influences can affect these negatively with traumatic experiences and positively with pleasant ones. Studies on the science of intergenerational trauma between Holocaust survivors and their children have, have suggested that trauma can be passed between the generations. Our genes carry all of our traits, physical and psychological. The traits we physically express are known as phenotypic traits. The genes that aren't physically expressed are known as genotypic traits. A specialized branch of genetic science called epigenetics studies various phenotypic trait variations that are caused by external factors such as trauma. Our internal processes of trauma have the capacity to turn on specific genes. And this can affect how these genes are read by cells. This has a direct impact on our evolution.
0: So we went back, the first stop
8: um, when we landed in Poland, this was back in 2007. Um, let me preface really quickly. The reason, the whole reason why we went to Poland was there was a man that was being honored as a righteous gentile by uh, by the, the by the former government of Poland uh, and the president, the former president of Poland, uh, Mr. Lech uh, Kaczynski. So they had invited my mother and my. Uncle Akiva to attend the ceremony. My mother couldn't attend. She asked uh, if I wanted to attend in her stead, which I jumped on the opportunity. Thankful, thank, you know, thank, thanks to my uh, the, the the generosity of my uncle Akiva. He had gotten together um, prior, just prior, with a, with an organization called JRI Poland, Jewish Record Indexing. Poland, and through that organization, he had hired a um, a man. His name is Chris, uh, a Polak, a Polish. You know, and he worked. uh, He works, I think, till till this day with the organization. And my uncle had him basically go back and track down and speak with. uh, the mayor of the, of the Sztadel that my grandparents are from, Klemento, which is down south southern Poland, outside of a province called Sandomiecz. Um, he also went and had tracked down the family that was currently living in my grandparents' home, uh, which Akiva and my mother on a prior trip to Poland had met. Um, we ended up doing lunch with them. We ended up having a fairly heated exchange um over over some things. They were they were under the impression, and I'll get into it, that my uh, that, that my uncle and I were there to try to recoup um, stolen stolen property, which we were not. We had absolutely no intention of doing that. Well let's go back to the the uh, you know it's a fairly long presentation. So this is the Jewish cemetery at uh at uh, at Ogerow, Ogerow. Um the cemetery was interesting it was split in half there was a gentile side there was a jewish side the jewish side from which you could see it was uh, it was old it was decrepit it was littered it was not kept uh the matzavot the 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 uh headstones stood literally about six feet tall they were very intricate um my uncle who spoke you know fluent yiddish fluent hebrew uh was able to basically get by with with fairly, what I thought was fairly fluent German, but what would I know because of his knowledge in Hebrew. And he was able to communicate with um, with one of the women, uh, Helena Rebus, who was actually, her and her husband were uh, neighbors to my great-grandparents and my grandparents. And we uh, we actually ended up uh, having lunch with them. It was an interesting lunch, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it shortly. But anyway, this is, as you can see, this is the Jewish cemetery at Argero. This is my uncle Akiva, who stands six feet, you know, one inch. You can see this by, by the sheer size of the matzavah. Um, you know um, uh, what was going on. Ajero is actually, uh, I believe, uh, dates back to the 1600s. Um, Jews occupied about uh, about two thirds of the population of Ajero. Uh, a couple more of the matzavot again, very interest, uh, intricate. We left Ojero. we drove around a little bit, we ended up in, uh, in Sandomierz. Um, there was this one hotel in Sandomierz, it's on a street called Ulica Judowska, which you see in front of you, that translates to Polish as Jew Street. Why do they call it Jew Street? Because back in the day when they liquidated Clementov, uh, when they liquidated Sandemirch of Jews, they basically gathered in this square. There was no hotel there; it was just an empty lot. They gathered on this square. From there, they sent them basically straight, uh, straight to Treblinka. I was blown away when I saw how could you name Uliska Judowska? To me, if I saw this here in the states, I would probably be offended. I wasn't about to question the motives of of um, of the polls um we started off the day that we started actually that night we were fairly exhausted but we did do a little bit of research a little bit of genealogical research um into into my grandparents into their name into their you know their their surnames um we were told that if we went to the former synagogue which now currently till today houses the archives of Sandomierz. The, you know, the government took it over, it's not a shul anymore. Um, we went there to start our journey, uh, to try to trace uh, information on um, on genealogical roots to uh, to my grandparents. And mind you, every step of the way, this is only a four-day tri- four trip to Poland, but it's something that, I, that's, that stuck with me forever, that will stick with me forever. I wrote a book uh, of course, um, <clears throat> and you know we're basically in the sticks. We're you know it took it took us about four hours to drive from uh, Warsaw to to Saint-Denis. The roads aren't the greatest. We were the only me and my uncle were the only Jews. I remember there were several times I started thinking to myself when we were driving, uh, you know, particularly to Auschwitz and to Treblinka. Um, you know, anybody can basically drive us to any parts of the back was here, put a bullet in our heads, bury us. No one would say boo. No one would be the wiser. No one would find us. That, it, it was very, very uh, scary. But anyway, in the back, before we even entered the building, um, in the back of the cemetery, in the back of these shuls back in the old, the old country, the cemeteries were typically uh, in in the back of the uh, shuls. From what I understand, when the Jews uh, would travel from place to place, they would settle down, they'd get expelled, move on, settle down, get expelled, move on ad, na- ad nauseum. The, uh, the first order of business when settling into any new community was to buy a plot of land. And the purpose to buy a plot of land was to establish a shul, to establish a synagogue, and to establish a cemetery. So when I went to the back of the former synagogue of, of Sandomierz, the current archives, this is what, in, this is what, what I saw, this is what we, what we had encountered. Um, a swastika with a gun, as you could see, pointing to the head of the swastika. I asked our guide in Poland, I said, what does that say on top of the swastika, Chris? He says it means finish. Then, okay. I didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to say. This uh, stencil was actually uh, uh, spray painted throughout the back of the, the synagogue. So let's go inside to the into the uh, into the archives. Let's see if we can find anything in the bo- in, in in the books there. Let's let's see if there's anything left that's Jewish. So, yeah, finish them. That's basically what it said in several areas, stenciled in the back. So this is this is how our journey began. In the front of the synagogue, you can see that it says in several languages, the former synagogue built at the end of the 17th century. Present it houses the archive, of the city's archives. In the past, since 1364. 1364, we're talking what? We're talking before. Christopher Columbus had, had, you know, discovered America. By maybe, what, a hundred and some odd years. The Jewish community in San had the privilege of the King's protection. <laughs> we walked inside, we couldn't find any, any archives. Everything was, in, we had nothing that that mentioned any, anything uh, Jewish, anything that had to do with my grandparents, anything that had to do with their families. By the way, this research went on after our trip to present day. Uh, We had found, we had since then found a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. This is one of the murals that was painted in the shul. Here's another mural that was painted in the shul. Uh, One of the things that I had learned, and the shul, let me tell you, in its heyday, must have been magnificent. Throughout the entire ceilings, you see there were 12 murals, one painted for each of the zodiacs or each of the mazals, as it would say on the bottom of the zodiac, it would say mazal with the name of the zodiac. Everyone has heard of the term mazaltov, mazaltov, good luck. That's not what it means. And this is something that I had just learned when I was you know, back then. Mazal means may the stars be with you, may the constellations be with you, may it be good tidings for you. Another mazal, another zodiac. This is of Yarom Kosh. You could see um, the fish, or I don't know if they were, you know, the Pisces fish around the window with Jewish stars on top. It says in, you know, in Hebrew, it translates to know, know before whom it is that you stand, to try to get you into the right meditative frame of mind before going to, to pray in front of the master of the universe. Another mazal, Here's the uh, a mural of the ten commandments, which was about uh, which was by the Aaron Kodesh. And I'm talking, I mean, these murals, these pictures really don't do you justice. We're talking, you know, six feet, huge. I mean, they were they were huge, huge, completely unkept, completely none, you know, not nothing restored. We left Sandomiech, we we went to Klementov. In Klemento is where we had lunch. We met Ashley. Uh, due to due to arrangements made by Chris prior to our arrival, we met with the mayor of Clementov at the time, took us on a tour, uh, took us to the cinema. Um, my grand, my my uh, uncle Kiva, rest his soul, remembers his father telling him stories of seeing Shirley Temple movies in the in the cinema there, um, and the fact that I was just, I was sitting there, it, it just it it blew my mind. Um, this was the synagogue back in the, uh, that still stands, and it is still the most beautiful building in the entire city. Prior to Ju- uh, October twenty second, nineteen forty two, there were approximately four to one the, the the approximate relationship and ratio between Jews to Poles was about four to one, four Jews to every Pole. As of October twenty third. 1942 onward Klimatov is completely Judenrein it's completely cleansed of Jews no Jews live there at all this building sits there as a testament to what what once was the building does not look like this anymore it's been spray painted it's been vandalized it's been locked up um they my my uncle i have an old picture of the shul my uncle back from the 1800s you could tell the 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 the, let me try to find it here the uh uh, here here we go i don't know if you can you can see this here you're able to kind of see that there okay all right um so we had you know i i wanted to make access i wanted to arrange for the mayor to give us access to the inside of the shul I wanted to meet my grandparents' uh, neighbors, who who we met, who were still there. Uh, she had she had uh, passed away. Um, it was an interesting lunch. I have the entire. I, 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 also, I must I must say that the um, from the moment I land, from the moment we landed to the moment we took off, my video camera was nonstop rolling non-stop rolling. I've got about 14 hours of, of footage from our four day trip. Um, the only time I wasn't recording was was pretty much when we were sleeping or eating. Um, this is what the, what the synagogue looked like when we were there. Um, you could see it all boarded up. In the back of the synagogue, as I had mentioned earlier, there was a cemetery. The Jews that had settled this area, we're talking, you know, older than the United States of America. And I'm bringing that up for a reason. This is the inside of the shul. This is where the Arun Kodesh was, this is where the Sefer Torah was held. This is a photograph of my mother and my uncle Akiva back from 1993. That was their first trip back to Poland. they had went to Clementov. They had met with with uh, the the couple who the family that now lives in my grandparents' old home. My uncle had show them an old picture, an old family picture, of uh, of the, my family that lived there. And the woman who lived there, I met, who I met, Helena Rebus. Her husband had passed away, but at the time of this picture was alive, he was able to identify every single person in the photograph, including my grandfather. Every single one. And my grandfather, Wolf Mitzmacher, his, father's, his father was a Kiva Mitzmacher. My uncle was named after him, he has his namesake. So did, Kiva Mitzmacher, he goes, yeah, this is my grandfather. This is what is left Left from back in 1991, 93, around that time. This is what was left at the cemetery in the back of a shul of a shtetl that existed longer than the United States. <clears throat> this is what was left back then. Now, by the way, there's nothing at all, nothing. When we went back, there was nothing there. All right. What you're looking at here are human bones. I found these bones when I was walking uh, the grounds of the back of the shul with my uncle Akiva. He would say to me, he goes, by the way, on on top of uh, uh, the back of the shul now, there's a playground, there's an elementary school, there's a soccer field. The entire area was raised, with the exception of the remains of those that lie interred, that was not, um, to my understanding, uh, disturbed. But it was when they had built. We found out when they had built the soccer field. Whatever graves were on this side of the field were moved and dumped, basically, over to this side of the field. And now we have a little memorial going. Okay, you know, my uncle looked at me and he he basically. A lot of things that were said to both of us by the polls there, he would interject um, and it's it's in the video uh, and he would say to me in Hebrew. They're lying. This is not what happened. And he would basically communicate with me in Hebrew. um, What was going on Uh, just my parents are Israeli. Uh, They were both, you know. Just so you know, how, how do I know Hebrew? Hebrew was my first language. My parents are Israeli. Um, when my grandparents were, were liberated, just let me rewind real quick so you understand. Uh, when they were liberated, they had gone to Italy. They had basically bounced around. They ended up in the British Mandate of Palestine. When my uncle was born, um, they had decided to leave uh, the British Mandate. My, uh, my grandfather, uh, Auschwitz survivor, fought in the World uh, War of Independence for Israel um, right before they moved. This is actually a picture of the very first Yom Smaut from Israel. This is my uncle Akiva. That's Moshe Dayan before he lost his eye. And my mother, I think, is in another... My mother's in this picture. Here we go. I don't know if you can see this pretty well. Moshe Dayan, my grandfather, Wolf Bitzmacher, my Uncle Akiva, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, are, are these pictures in your book, Jack? These these pictures actually were not in my book. I discovered these pictures after my book was published. Uh, the pictures that are in my book, um, that's why I'm showing them on on, on the screen now. Uh, the pictures that are in my book were from, my, from our trip. They were okay. all, all our pictures from our trip. So going back to, going back to the cemetery, we're walking on the grounds, kids are playing, there's a playground, they're playing soccer, there was, there was, uh, uh, you know, parents, it was something that you would see just walking through Central Park, walking through a neighborhood, a neighborhood park, you would never think that, you know, a couple of feet down were, it was, were Jewish, Jewish remains. So my uncle would tell me, he goes, you, he goes, it doesn't take much. To, to move, disturb the soil that you and I are walking on right now before human bones start, start to emerge. And I looked at him. I said, what are you talking about? Human bones? He goes, Jack, this was a cemetery. He basically went through the whole thing. So he, he basically started kicking his feet a little bit, digging around. These, these are, you know, it, we didn't need a shovel. You didn't need to get on your hands and knees. You needed to kick your feet for bones, Jewish bones, my, my great-grandparents, my family. I was dumbfounded. I, I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to respond. We, okay, this is all in, in the video, this is all in the video. Our guide who spoke fluent Polish, of course, you know, would go up to the kids and we were constantly surrounded by these kids because I had a video camera, so I must have been some rich American. <laughs> far from it um but i had a video camera um and i'm recording everything that's going on and all the kids want it to be in the video camera and they're all coming hello 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 you know he christopher goes up to chris says starts talking to these kids he goes do you know what this is talk talk yes talk is yes in polish talk yeah, we, we know what this is what is it these are jew bones oh okay the jew bones How often do you guys come across Jew bones? Oh, all the time, especially after it rains, especially in that area over there. Okay, what do you do with these Jew bones when you come across them? Well, we put them into a bucket. Put them into a bucket? Yeah, inside the elementary school, in the history class, we have a bucket. And anytime someone comes across the Jew bones, we put them into a bucket. I was floored. I didn't know how how to react. I didn't know how to respond. I just, I just, I just kept, I just kept the film rolling, uh, the film rolling. I kept the camera going. Um, would you, you know, they asked us if we would like to come up and see uh, the bucket. I said absolutely because it was my intention at that point to take that bucket out of their possession and take it with me. What I would do with it, I, I, I didn't know, but that was just my knee jerk response that this does not belong here um i did take these three bones that you see here i took them i put them in my pocket i took them with me they didn't they not that they didn't belong there but they didn't deserve what was happening it was just disgusting how 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 it was desecrated um um, i didn't know what i was going to do with them i'll get into it this is all in the book i don't want to touch about it too much because again you can read on it this is basically, uh, when we left Klementov, um, this was my, cu- my uncle Perry, Perry Shulman. This was my uncle Perry Shulman's house, the house that he grew up in. He had since passed. He was uh, bunkmates with Elie Wiesel. There's a very famous picture of, of them, um, which I may have included in here. Um, so my uncle Ak- Akiva had called Perry to tell him exactly where he was, where he was staring, or where he was standing, what he was looking at um here's the picture that i just told you about this is a picture of ellie former prisoners of the camp in buchel stare out from the wooden bunks which they slept through bed ellie wiesel is pictured in the second row of bunks seventh from the left next to the vertical beam abraham Hitler is pictured in the second row fourth to the left the man on the third bunk from the bottom th- uh, is uh isaac berkowitz he's also identified as abraham baruch Michael Nicholas Gruner, originally from Hungary, is pictured on the bottom left corner. Perry Schulman, my uncle, <clears throat> from Klementov. Poland is on the top bunk, second from the left looking up. I never met Ellie uh, Wiesel. Uh, my sister, my cousin did when he was giving a talk and she went up to him and asked, and asked, he goes, do you happen to remember Perry Shulman? He goes, absolutely, I remember Perry Shulman. I goes, oh, he, you know, he's my uncle. So it's an interesting story that, they had, they had, how, how they had met. Um, In the back of that old, uh, let me just preface this, this uh, wall that you're seeing, in the back of the uh, archives was the old uh, shul. That was the old shul. This, uh, or then the old cemetery on Suha Street, Suha Street, Suha Street, they had basically moved the Matzevot from that area after the war or soon after the war. Uh, whoever didn't loot them, take them to build roads, use them, you know, uh, they were stored in the, in, in the church for a while um, or in the cloisters for a while. Uh, our next stop was basically to go to the new cemetery on Suha Street. Uh, the new cemetery on Suha Street is actually adjacent to an active church and an active parochial school. Uh, the church receives a stipend from the state of Poland to take care of these grounds. The uh, The cemetery was closed. We went in. Chris went in. Like I said, he had made arrangements. They One of the nuns came out. They opened up the gate, let us in, and gave us whatever time we needed inside of the inside of the, uh, <clears throat> the grounds here. Uh, in the middle of the grounds stood a, an enormous, what they call a lapidarium. I wasn't sure what a lapidarium was. A lapidarium was a huge memorial, big memorial. This memorial made by an artist from the Matzevot, from the headstones, from this, the archives of so the former, and I have a picture of it, the former um, shul. These are some of the headstones attached to the wall. Here's the lapidarium. And I have a picture of this in my book. Um, As Akiva was exploring the the lapidarium in the grounds, he called me over. He had found a a headstone in this lapidarium belonging to a family member by the name of Factor, uh, which coincidentally factors grand was it daughter or granddaughter at the time she was in her 70s or 80s um i had met her uh a week a week or two prior to this trip and when i told her that you know we were going on this trip uh, she basically broke down and uh it was a very difficult conversation to say the least from there oh when we left When we left the, uh, the, the cemetery, when we left the Jewish cemetery there, I was blown away. I did not, I did not know what to think. I did not know what to say. I, you know, I had my, I'm not, I'm not an observant Jew. Um, but I did wear a yarmulke when I was there, because as far as I'm concerned, this was Holy land. This was, This was uh, a cemetery where my my family was, um, and I was going to, at the very least, give them the the respect that that they so deserved. Excuse me if I'm losing my voice a little bit. As we left the, uh, the, uh, the grounds there, school was letting out, elementary school, And we went back into our our van and um, I wasn't really thinking too much of anything and excuse excuse the French, but I'm quoting here. As we're walking toward the van, one of the kids, no more than maybe, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, 12 years old maybe, looked me straight in the eye and he goes, fucking Jew, excuse me? And I stopped, I stopped. And I wasn't sure how to approach this. I I have been, you know, um, living in America, going back and forth to Israel my entire life, visiting family. You know, I've I've been pretty well-versed in in anti-Semitism. I feel like I'm pretty well-versed in how, how it needs to be handled. what and and to what point to to engage somebody to what point to, to disengage some you know in in certain people just not to engage them at all i wanted to go and talk to this little kid because that's what he was he was a little kid had no life experience didn't know what he was talking about and i knew i knew that it wasn't him that was speaking it was his father or it was his grandfather who may have witnessed some of the events that, that that had occurred here, and I wanted to sit there and I wanted to educate him. I wanted to know where this mentality was coming from, why, from what? What is he so afraid of? What is it about the Jew that you are so afraid of? My uncle in Hebrew, again, you know that was one side of me. The other side of me wanted to take him, you know, to the side and take care of him the old-fashioned way, but. Uh, that was just me, you know, speaking out of, out of, out of anger as a, as a knee jerk response. And it's nothing that would have ended well, because like I said, we were the only Jews at the time there. So my uncle, again, in Hebrew tells me <laughs> in a not so nice way to shut my mouth, to get into the car and to be done with it. And he'll talk to me about it later. Not to, he goes, not now, this is not, this is not the time. to get into into this type of argument. This is not the time to get into this type of debate. From there, we went to Auschwitz. Auschwitz, you can see walking through the gates of Auschwitz, work will set you free. If you look on the left-hand side of the building there, you'll see uh, that right now, currently to date, houses the archives of Auschwitz. My uncle Akiva, rest his soul, said it right. He goes, if you ever encounter A holocaust denier a jew hater someone who says the holocaust never happened he goes don't engage he goes if they really wanted to know the truth they don't have to visit what's left of the gas chambers they don't have to visit what's left left of auschwitz or 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 madonic or any of the other camps they just need to go to the archives in auschwitz because the nazis were so meticulous in the way they documented and how they documented and who came and with who and what and why, those archives are still there and they're still being researched and they're still being looked through. You don't have to set foot in Auschwitz past the archives to know that the Holocaust happened. So any he says to me, anytime you're engaging with somebody, they're speaking purely from hatred, don't engage them. If they really want to know the truth, the truth, they, they, ju- they just need to visit the, uh, the, the archives in Auschwitz. That's all they need to do. When you go to Auschwitz, I don't know how many, how many on, this, on this session that are listening to, to this, how, um, how when you go to Auschwitz, it's now a museum. You must hire a guide to walk you through the grounds of Auschwitz. There's no other way to do it. You got to pay an admission. You got to hire a guide that didn't sit well with me or with my uncle. This is in the book. And I will never forget this till the day I die. And for those that knew my uncle, <laughs> they can see this happening. We're walking through. There's a woman sitting at, the, at a booth, as a, a cashier. And we're just walking, walking by and she stops us. And she says, sir, to my uncle, she goes, sir, you must pay. What are you talking about? I must pay. I'm touring the grounds. My my I understand that, sir, but you must pay for an admission ticket. You must have a bill, a, a ticket. I forgot how to say it in Polish. So he says to me, Excuse me. She goes, Oh, yeah, you have to pay. He goes, Did you just say I have to pay? Yeah, yeah, sir, you have to pay. I'm not paying, but you have to pay admission. Are you out of your mind? I'm not paying. You're not going to see a dime from me. My parents paid. I'm not paying. My whole family paid. Are you crazy? You think I'm... He started in on her. <laughs> Let me tell you something. The woman that we were with that was actually a guide, a uh, certified Auschwitz uh, guide to Auschwitz that our, our, that our tour guide had, our private tour guide had hired that he had known, um, Got involved. Some words were said, and they let us through. So we actually went through with with her. Um, let's see what the next slide is. This is actually one of this is the only gas chamber stand, standing right now. Uh, all of them in Birkenau were destroyed. This is the only gas chamber that that that's left. It's it's an Auschwitz. It was the first gas chamber that that uh, went into deployment. Um, This is the the crematoriums that were adjacent to the gas chambers in Auschwitz. Um, Walking around the ground, some of the signs of the electrocuted fence. You can see over here, Block 11. Block 11, for those that don't know, Block 11 was the death block. Um, Block 11 was adjacent, right adjacent to that very famous wall that that they walked to to be shot or hung en masse. right across from the gynecological block where all sorts of gruesome experiments were performed. So my grandfather was actually something we have learned recently. He was not brought to Auschwitz um, with everybody else in Klementov. He was actually brought as, as a political prisoner to Auschwitz, which is why they assigned him a uh, death block in block 11. From what I understand, there were, there were three instances Two or three instances where the prov- the literal noose was brought around his neck and tightened, um, and then they let him go. Why did they let him go? I th- my my uncle my uh, basically tells me that you know your grandfather was a tailor. He he cared. He he hemmed a lot of the, the SS uniforms. They kept him working, and that's why they kept him alive. And that that that's basically what what had kept him alive. In the death camp in the in block eleven. So you see over here to the right, that's the death wall to the right is block eleven. to the left is the gynecological block. Everything on this death wall that you see right now in front of you is original, with the exception of the uh, the gray cinder blocks. That's new. that that's not original by new, I mean not original. This is the uh, uh, from, I believe, this is the outside. Uh, right before the receiving platform. This is the tower uh, in Auschwitz, in, in Birkenau, when my uncle and I, you know, our guide was, she told us, walk around the grounds a little bit. I have to take you around, so don't venture too far. Give me the names and the numbers tattooed on your grandparents. I will pull out of the archives, whatever documents I can find and photocopy them for you, which was incredible. Um, and that, that I photocopied, it's all in, in the book, if, if you know if you're interested. Um, this is a picture of the receiving platform, uh, taken taken from the tower. You can see the on the right hand side the receiving platform. They were flanked. I don't know if you can see it in the photo, but they, they were flanked all the way to the rear with uh, with the gas chambers. These are some of some of the some of the uh, some of the, uh, the ruins of what's left. Uh, and I, I must say, you know, you walk around these grounds. Grounds are n- a cemetery but they're an archaeological site i had found in addition to bones i had found cutlery plates you know things things that need to be need to be preserved Thing things that you know um, here's one of the plates i had picked up you know and i had found um and I, I i put it back and i left it there it's there's no place to put them there's no place to uh, you could see it's, it's eventually was going to get rusted completely out um, but this is one of the plates here's one of the latrines um, you know and I get into this here on their arrival most Jews were sent by the SS for immediate death in the gas chambers however they were often forced to wait their turn in this clump of trees if the gas chambers were full at the time and then I take the, po- the picture and you know uh Uh, Peter had so eloquently mentioned in his, in his presentation, you know, black and whites. And I, you know, I say the same thing, the black and whites don't do justice. You look at them and you say, this is something that had happened a long time ago. um, And it's something that I'm not a part of. And it's something that has no connection to me. And when you take a look at this exact scene in color, it kind of brings a little bit more um, power, a little bit more breadth. Into, into this, to the, to the memory of the men, women and children who fell victim to the Nazi genocide in this pond lay their ashes, and here's the pond, this is just wa- you know, walking the ground, what's left of the electrified fence, this is a wheelbarrow left on display in Ashford's carried by the they basically, as we all know, you know, this is where where dead piles of corpses went to the crematoriums, and before they were burned, they were uh, inspected. Every cavity of the corpse was inspected for for hidden jewelry, gold fillings, what have you. Zongold. Here's one of the uh, uh, gas chambers destroyed by the Nazis when they fled. This is a picture taken from the inside of Birkenau facing the, uh, uh, you can see the the receiving platform over here on the left-hand side instead of on the right-hand side because we're on the inside facing out. You could see all the memorial candles placed on the tracks here. This is, um, this is, uh, um, This is my grandfather's uh, when he when he arrived in Auschwitz. You could see it's this is a photocopy, of course, of the original. On the bottom, arrival August eighteenth, nineteen forty four. We did not know this until we pull until we pulled this record. We did not know uh, the day that that uh, that he arrived in Auschwitz. On the upper right hand side, one five three nine eight eight was the number tattooed on his arm. Here is another list taken from the archives in Auschwitz. Um, My grandfather is in the middle, Mitzmacher Wolf. Again, these were either typed or very, very neatly written. Um, The days, the time, uh, and the location of of where this human cargo had come from. Jack, I'm sorry, we're going to have to
5: um, come to a close. So why don't you do your wrap? I'll do my
8: rap. Okay. Basically, let's go through this. As a child, as a grandchild to Holocaust survivors, um, as someone like in this, in this, uh, like most of you who, who are um, uh, child, children to Holocaust survivors, um, we have as a part of us this trauma. Um, which, has, which has been and is currently undergoing um, um, a lot of research in the medical field. Um, if I were to draw a, a single conclusion or an important conclusion about the genetic transference of trauma uh, is that it gives people, people like us, an enhanced skill set to be able to respond optimally to diversity this is part of our legacy. This is something that that we have to continue to to send this message across. We have a heightened radar for genocide. Um, we can use our enhanced skill set and reinforced resilience to affect a positive change in this world, uh, starting with our own environment. This is basically the message that that I try to give through through my book. Um, I dissect. Uh, um, you know, what it was about me, my past, my experience with trauma, my grandparents. uh, Every time I was in Poland trying to go through what they went through, I would close my eyes and picture that exact scenario going, except not having it with them, but with me and with my children and with my wife, undergoing right then and there. And it put a whole new level to this span. It it just took it to a whole new level in terms of, of how deeply embedded this trauma is and what good can come from it.
5: Oh, thank you. Um, it's really terrific. And I would hope that you can uh, sh- send me through, we transfer your, yeah, go through them there so I can see them recorded. So I think that'll yeah, be- Yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. So I'll go back. So so this was, okay, so- oh, this just,
5: was, leave, just pass them through, don't talk.
8: Okay. I know you want to, but we don't have time. And it's too much. That's all right. I just wanna, but I, I think you can you can get an idea as to what these are pictures of. That's my grandmother on the left. It's Mauthausen. It's my grandfather with his Auschwitz uniform. This is some of the some of the stuff that I had retrieved in Poland
0: that was buried that we had found. Don't ask. Okay, thank you. Can you stop your share? Yep.
5: Appreciate it. Uh, well, just at the very top, the very top is to stop share.
0: I'll see if I can take it away from you. Stop share. There we go. There we go.
5: Yep. So, you know, I know we're coming to the end. I know you have questions, but I've been waiting for nine months. When we first started to book this trip, uh, this path together for this production, I had trauma like you have since growing up. And I can relate all the way back to the fifth grade. I my parents, both survivors, did not speak. And I used to have nightmares all the time. But in 2020, someone invited me to engage with a uh, second gen survivor group here in San Diego. And ever since then, I have launched all of what you know about me. And leaning in to know what you didn't know has helped me manage my um, traumas. So my question to you is your trip to Poland did leaning into that trip help you on your path to recovery from some of the traumas
8: that you have 100% 100% but i got i got to tell you it's it 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 wasn't like reading a recipe it was internalizing the horror and and trying to picture me my children my wife going through it and then trying to Untangle what it was that made me me, and try to separate or try to sift through that, and it 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 was an ongoing battle, and that's one of the reasons why I put my I put my book to publication was because as the uh, inherited trauma became more and you know as I started learning more and more about it, I started saying to myself, "Wow, if 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 I'm able to overcome this, everybody can overcome this."
5: So I have have a question for the general people who are left. I have Mark, I have Jackie, I have Ruth, I have Ava, I have Dana, I have Judith, and I have Agnes, and I have the, the Saltzmans who I know are not survivors, but the rest of you have written a book. So was the process of writing in some way cathartic for you to be able to deal with your own... I, you know, everyone has has a their own shtick. I call mine trauma, but it may be different for other people. So, I was wondering if the authors in the in the in here with us, uh, and there's only really one who isn't. And I'll give Judith as a vocal author because she's very active in 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 vocal uh, Jewish uh, stories. So, what do you think, guys? I have a have a rah here, so I'm going to take the advantage. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, for me, this
4: was extremely, you know, important and cathartic because uh, I grew up with this shadow of the Holocaust, but none of the details. And I knew I did not have grandparents. I was born two years and one day after mom was freed from Auschwitz, but I had no idea what the Ludge Ghetto was like or Rumkowski. So when I wrote my books and did the research, I was I was absolutely shocked.
7: And I really did it only to, you know, let my children know
4: because I was afraid of how they would be impacted by not knowing our past. Because I knew it impacted me tremendously, as it did you, Jeffrey. All right.
5: So for our recorded audience, please tell us what book you wrote. So they'll it'll be uh, sorry. Our- My books are called The Devil's Bookkeepers. Okay, and Jack, you have your hand raised.
9: Uh, Yes, first of all, I want really to say thank you to Jack because uh, he he made the presentation, which is amazing, and the presentation of today. As I say a few times, even with Jeffrey uh, Geisner inviting me, we have to find another angle to teach to show what happened. And I think what you are doing, Jack, is absolutely unbelievable. And my question is, are you, I I, I would definitely get your book, but are you planning to do something with your recording? And if you need help with that, or are you presenting at the Shoah Foundation, at institutions with very established, like the Jewish Book Council, how can we, how much are you taking your word out because, you are bringing in the new world of education and of the just, Holocaust and genocide. And
5: so. without uh, Jackie blowing her own horn, she's a member of the uh, Middle Eastern uh, Committee for uh, the, U- U- the Shoah uh, Foundation. UC. So she, you can directly talk to Jackie on how the Shoah sure. Foundation can maybe use your video.
8: Sure. Sure, I haven't had any plans to do any of that. Um, it, it would definitely need to go undergo hours and hours of editing because like I said, the camera was rolling nonstop, um, but there's a lot of good meat on there. <laughs> so if- um, Okay, yeah.
5: Agnes, Agnes, um, please t- tell us what you're, what you're thinking and, and introduce your book to our audience.
10: Oh, well, um, my book is Sabine's Odyssey, Sabine being my mother. Um, she was a hidden child in the Netherlands um, from Germany. And I guess I'm a little unusual because I had no idea about the Jewish heritage until I was 20. So there wasn't really a trauma (laughs) that I can associate with, however, researching this. um, And it was very important to my mother that the the story be told, uh, particularly to her grandchildren. So people are aware these horrible things happened um, it was rather disturbing to discover how many relatives who were um, I didn't know about were affected um, and and perished in the Holocaust. So it was all it was more um, difficult writing it than trying to overcome any kind of internal trauma. So
5: okay. thank that's you. A little... and, and Ava, you uh, please tell us what your book is and if you have any comments.
11: My book is titled Hidden Recipes. Holocaust memoir. Uh, Both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was in Auschwitz. And from there, she was taken two months later to Germany, to a munition factory, where she was selected to be a translator. She spoke fluent German. So she was able to pilfer, she was selected to be a translator and messenger and was told to clean the factory if there is no messages to take through the vast area of the factory or no no translating to do. So when she cleaned that factory, she was able to pilfer paper. On one side, it had the munition that, that that factory in Hesse Schlichtenau manufactured and on the other side was blank. And when the women got together in the barracks at night and they were starving. They talked about food constantly. And she was writing on this munition paper on the other side, was writing recipes. And she wrote hundreds and hundreds of recipes. I knew my parents' stories since I was very young. I grew up uh, hearing those stories. The reason I published I always wanted to write down this story for my children and my fu- the future generation. But the reason I decided to publish because already, so I published end of the year 2019 and already antisemitism was on rise and I was very troubled. And now it's even worse. And I wanted to go public just to tell people what happens when there is the hatred and all everything that's going on.
5: And you did more than just go public. You donated how many of the recipes to the US Holocaust?
11: Yes, we donated over 600 recipes written by my mother to the Holocaust Museum, Museum in Washington DC. And I just want to tell you that I'm still um, traumatized. I am still, I'm, I'm a terrible warrior And just recently I was on my way somewhere where I was meeting my children and I saw an accident and I couldn't, I I was just shaking by the time I arrived and and relieved to see all my children that they were safely arrived to that place where I was meeting them.
5: Okay, Ruth, do you have any, please uh, talk to us about your book title and if you have any comments. You have to unmute yourself. I can't hear you. You have to unmute., uh,
7: the trauma that this generation, my children's generation, has been experiencing is a uh, not a surprise, necessarily, but it's it's been a revelation for me because we didn't we thought we had protected all of you and that you would not uh, be traumatized. Okay, we we didn't tell you because we didn't want to frighten you. On the other hand, we did not do you a favor, obviously, and we should have talked to you about it. So I've been talking to students for about 40 years and I was a little girl. I, I tell them how, what it felt like to be persecuted as a very young child in Vienna for, two years under the fascist government, and that trauma was a daily thing. You knew that there were people out there to kill you, and when you're six years old and you realize that, you grow up pretty fast. So I decided to write it all down finally, because I've been talking all these years, and I did did write a book. Uh, It's called We Chose Survival, and, you know, actually we did choose survival because mm-hmm. most of my relatives chose not to try to leave. They could have. They, they kept saying the Austrians aren't gonna act like the Germans. They're not going to be uh, uh, that, you know, uh, vi- viral about it. And uh, Austria is probably gonna stay a safe place. And my relatives in Czechoslovakia felt the same way all of them were murdered in Auschwitz. And my mother and I and my father, who my mother was smart enough to get out after he had been in Dachau, uh, were the only ones to survive. I did live through Kristallnacht and I think that probably uh, was one of the nightmares that I had for years about people after me. Now that I think back about it after living here about the last, uh, uh, okay, how long have I been here? 87 years? (laughs) Uh, I still dream about people coming after me. And so it does not necessarily go away. And at the moment it's getting worse. And I wanna warn everybody that we cannot just pretend that it's not going to happen because the people in this country are very not very different from what the Germans and the Austrians were in 1938
5: and Mm -hmm. those of you who are survivors who join our programming very much speak for my parents who are no longer living and you guide my pathway in order to bring these kind of programs and to to make sure that we have a bullhorn to uh say what we need to say, to be joyous Jews and not to cower. So I don't want to push myself my questions on you, Judith, or you, Lori, uh, and, and Rana. I'll show you, I'll talk to you in a second about what we're talking about real quick. Most of the rest of the group is, we're well over overtime time here. So, but we're having fun. So I don't want to shut it off. But um, Lori, if you have something to contribute, Judith, please just raise your hand so I, I, you can't talk over each other, but we'll take one at a time.
6: Lori, who's Lori?
5: Lori, she says no. So,
0: oh, I'm good. I'm
6: good. Not right at the moment. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Oh, I just want to say that. Um, well, for me, it was uh, I. I overcame the uh, traumatic um, fears that I had through music, and through um, co- through um, composing music about. Um, Judaism and about ju- just how how we treat people, how we are, how what it means to be a jew and and so that really helped me but but while it helped me overcome this this uh, traumatic fear that I had that was that I had for many many, many years and and um it, well, Jeff, for you know it was I was afraid in the shower, I was afraid to sing, I was afraid. That, that I was going to be attacked and I knew it was irrational, but I I couldn't help it. I had to stop singing for many, many, many years in the shower until I overcame this. And I won't go into the details right now because it's not my my talk, but I have to say that, you know, it's been this whole weekend, I've been preparing Hanukkah messages for my family. And what I've been doing is taking pictures of my father from when he, when my parents were escaping and everything and and my father uh and blowing up the pictures and making copies of them to send to all the the young ones so they'll know this was your grandfather this was what happened is and and see it they don't even know i have i have the pictures because i took them i had these little scrappy pictures and i took them to many years ago to a place in evanston illinois to have them uh archivally you know repaired and make it and then I was able to make nice pictures out of them and but doing them and copying them and I keep staring at them and and now hearing especially you um, uh, Jack when you I don't need I mean I never wanted to go to Auschwitz it's just too much for me and seeing all that I'm just right now I'm actually in tears you can't see the tears because I'm suppressing them but um, I just am so it really made me physically ill just, you know, seeing those pictures and everything. So I guess it's just never, you know, it's sort of the whole weekend and the pictures and-
5: And it's very important. And I wanna say that how I get to know so much about, uh, for instance, uh, the shower talk with Judith is that I I have started a, a series called The Obligations of Memory. And just on this call here, Ava has done it, Agnes has done it, Mark has done it, Dana has done it, um, Judith has done it. And those are all a series of interviews that are on YouTube. And they have brought me very close to uh, those. We spent two hours, and I certainly get into a lot of discussions. I know, uh, Jack, you're going to be setting one up uh, with me soon. And, and, and Rona, I'll leave you the last word, because we're talking about um, how and, and Jack's talk was really about how he was affected by inherited trauma and so if you have anything to contribute please unmute yourself and 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 let us know I know you're a big supporter of our group and you come to a lot of our events and you can see yeah. how I'm, you can see how I'm losing my voice so <laughs> uh
0: uh-huh.
12: um so yeah my father was um he was from Romania and then he and his family, they were sent to um, Mogilev. It's like a place, uh, they told like, um, it's like a, not a concentration camp, but they said it like a place of filth and you know, like a work camp. And, but really, but um, so what I got from my father I, um, was more like in the end of his life when he had cancer and he was strong, so it just made me feel like I, like, you know, I have that strength and I can do, you know, whatever. Me and my sisters, you know, we all grew up this way that we all think that, you know, we can handle anything because of his strength. So it was more like it strengthened us. So I didn't hear at the beginning of the talk to hear really what, um, what negatives everybody's carrying around with them. But for us and my sisters, it was more like he was a pillar of strength.
5: I also want to let you know, <laughs> That we have on uh december 14th and some of you have already signed up um, i'm putting together a havara of a small group of 20 people uh, at six o'clock pm uh, west coast time uh, and obviously you can make the conversions yourself um, and all you have to do is contact me i'll send you an invitation it's for invitation only where we're going to discuss uh these topics in a small group of like minded, uh, inclusive members. So, Ava, I hope you come, and Dana, I know you can't come, uh, but Agnes and Mark and uh, Jackie's coming, and Judith and Rona and Lori, I'd love to get to know. And maybe you can take you can end us and let us know a little bit about you. I don't know anything about you, so please tell us something.
0: Sure,
10: I live in uh, northwest Florida, and um, I been t- doing a little bit of a lot of research actually on epigenetics and I was starting to write a memoir. Um, my mother was a, what I founding at, finding out now was a Holocaust survivor. It was hard for me all her life that she uh, never, t- she never thought of herself that way. She was born in Germany um, and she and her family left um, during the war like 1936 and went to uh, Bulgaria and lived there for 12 years during the war. She, um, they had faced some some problems there, which I I don't wanna go into because it'll take too long um, for another time. But um, I think had she and her family not lived in Bulgaria, they probably would have been deported and killed because Bulgaria was one of those countries that wasn't, um, it was not invaded by Germany, but it was, sort of like a cross, um, like a highway to the other areas. My father was also born in Germany and he left for the United States um, much earlier than my mother did. They met here. So my, my story, my memoir was kind of about what happened, what about her story. That's how it started. I haven't finished it. I had to stop it because I think I was just experiencing a lot of trauma myself of all of just trying to figure it out. So I had to put it aside for now. And um, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment, just trying to figure out, um, you know, I guess I'll end it this way. My mother, um, I didn't tell her before she passed away last summer at the age of 97 that she was indeed a Holocaust survivor. I had applied for um, reparations from Germany and through um, different, a couple of different organizations that. I can't remember at the moment, and um, I got them. And I told her, I said, those organizations would not have given you that money if you were not considered a Holocaust survivor. She only thought of herself as a refugee. And that makes it very, sorry, that makes it difficult. So that's kind of a struggle I'm going through. So
5: Okay, so I want to conclude by letting you know, I'll get to you, Dana. We have our next event on January 15th with Dr. Bernice Lerner. Uh, who has written a Holocaust memoir, and uh, a very uh, close friend of mine, uh, Nathan Diamet from Israel, uh, who's a Holocaust survivor, and he's on the Yad Vashem, Righteous of the Na- Network Nations uh, Committee. So he brings uh, a lot of different uh, talents and passions. He also is the curator of the Kursenbaum, uh exhibit, which happens to be his uncle. So we'll uh, have a great program. And, and Dana, you can we we'll add your two cents in the last.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey. And thank you to Peter and Jack and to everybody here. Um, I just wanted to touch base with Jack and thank you for sharing your story. Your journey really touched me. Um, you took this heritage trip. It was incredibly impactful for you. You are motivating me to take my own heritage journey. Um, and encouraging me that there's a lot that I could get out of it. And I know there's more to your story. All our stories are so deep and so rich and cover so many years. So I look forward to reading your book to hear more of your journey. Um, And I'm especially fascinated by this part where you talked about um, trying to untangle yourself. And so I wanna read your book and see how much of that you answer. And for whatever you don't answer, I wanna contact you to find out more and um, And and I appreciate everybody else who's here today. And please, Dana,
5: tell the audience and the recorded audience who you are and what you're doing in the Jewish world.
1: Okay, thank you, Jeffrey. So I'm Dr. Dana Schrager, I'm a psychologist. Um, In midlife, I've become aware of my own inherited trauma. Uh, There were always ongoing issues, but I've connected those issues like Jack has to the inherited trauma. I'm writing a book myself, doing a lot of research, and Jeffrey and I have done two presentations um, on these JCHR Zooms about, and talking about the topic of inherited trauma and trying to inform the world that that this exists and this explains a lot of our fears and anxiety and what many of us uh, struggle with. And I'm working on trying to bring some groups to Los Angeles or on Zoom, it's still very much in the infancy stages to have uh, support and process groups for helping people talk about their inherited trauma and helping people try to work towards healing.
5: And so, how, about, how about being a maven in the Jewish cooking world?
1: Okay, thank you, Jeffrey, appreciate that. Um, Jeffrey and I connected through my groups on Facebook. I have two uh, Jewish cooking groups. One's called Jewish Cooking on Facebook, and the other Facebook group is called Jewish Holiday Cooking. And for me, this is a way to honor my family and to uh, share with the world the joy of being Jewish through food, through celebrating holiday, through bringing people together. It's part of the beautiful and joyous and celebratory parts of being Jewish. And so I help other people in the groups um, connect to all of this, so that's fun
5: okay and so i'm going to leave us with another uh noah Aronson song that is for hanukkah i think i wish you all the bright lights of a beautiful hanukkah holiday and uh we'll exit out with noah and his music called Bonote.
0: Oh, <laughs>